Hey everybody, it's Tim. It's the honor roll. This is the Tim's list. This is my top 10 list for the year. So what's been happening the last few months is that I have been tracking every new release, every new horror release I've watched this year. I've logged them. I've picked which ones I really liked. I've taken them out. I've placed them what I, on what I call the honor roll. From that honor roll, I'm going to pick my top 10 movies, which is what I call the Tim's list, which is like the Dean's list. So the Dean's list and the honor roll are two things that I have never been on in my life. But I want to give a couple of quick stats to illustrate what I'm talking about here. I watched 66 new horror movies this year. I got kind of a late start and I've been playing catch up for anybody who's been listening along with me kind of knows. 30 of those 66 movies that I watched made the honor roll. So that's like 45%. So I am not a super tough grader. I would have loved me as a teacher. But from those 30 movies, I am going to pull my favorite 10 movies of the year. And this is my favorite, all right? These are not the 10 best. These are just the ones I liked. I'm also wearing really loud sweatpants right now. So hopefully the mic isn't picking up too much of those. I don't like to do anything. We just did a superlative episode that should have dropped by now. I don't like to do worst movies of the year, not because I don't like putting negativity out into the world. I love doing that. It's one of my favorite things to do, but because most of the time I don't remember anything's about anything about the movies that I disliked. They just kind of leave my mind. So any movie I dislike, it's gone. It's from my mind. I just remember when I see the name or the title, I go, oh, I didn't like that. But I can't explain to you why right now. It's been like months since I watched them. I also like to try to keep these episodes around 30 minutes. So with this introduction, I'm not sure it's possible, but we're going to give it a try. Let's get to my top 10 movies of the year. All right. First up is Detention. I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on the history of Taiwan. I did a terrible job learning American history. I can't be expected to learn about Taiwanese history as well. I respect public school teachers. I believe in public school, but they can only expect to do so much with a student like me. Uh, part of why I love watching movies, uh, particularly foreign movies, is because they're a learning tool for me. I did not grow up in Taiwan. And I this movie taught me about a specific period of time in Taiwan. It's the white terror period in Taiwan when it was under martial law from 1947 to 1986. The Republic of China, under the aim of taking back all of China targeted any individuals in Taiwan that spoke up against the government or had a strong sense of Taiwanese identity. And that's what this movie kind of covers. It's not a documentary. It's a ghost story. So it isn't an in-depth, like year-by-year -year recounting of the many events of the white terror period. It's just meant to serve as something that can spark interest in learning more, as it did in my case, because after I watched this movie, I spent a good five minutes on Wikipedia reading up on the white terror. And now I am an, ex an expert and I can speak as an expert on the subject, and I will do so at a later date. Detention, it's also an adaptation of a video game that is available now. I, I, got, I have it on Switch for about, I think you can get it for about 10 bucks. It's awesome. It's cool as hell. And so is this movie. So number 10 is Detention, my first movie on the Tim's list. Next up is Willy's Wonderland, number nine. I used to love the Country Bears as a kid and Showbiz Pizza. So Showbiz Pizza was basically like Chuck E. Cheese, but with a rock band. I think Showbiz actually outlasted Chuck E. Cheese. I think they bought them out, but they let Chuck E. Cheese keep their name and they didn't rebrand them as Showbiz Pizza. There is like a, there's a very fascinating backstory involving the two companies that involves like lawsuits and business deals gone wrong and bankruptcy. Go 
check it out because I don't have the time to read it to you. Needless to say, the anima animatronics were cool as a kid, both the country bears and the showbiz pizza animatronics, like the bands and stuff. And I think I just like watching animals that can play music, but as an adult or maybe just as a kid too, uh, they were creepy. They're creepy as hell. Willie's Wonderland gets that. There's something incredibly disturbing about looking at like a soulless anthropomorphic bear creature belting out songs with their, with their eyes not moving and just kind of looking at you all dead inside. Uh, terrifying stuff. What hasn't been terrifying though, is the last couple years of Nicolas Cage. He's been interesting again. And it's great for people like me who have been fans and find him to be a very unique and singular screen presence. And that's on display in Willy's Wonderland, where he doesn't say a word throughout the movie. He just kind of lets his Nick Caginess speak for itself. And it works, especially in a silly comic book of a movie like this one. This is a movie starring Nick Cage, and it's about a bunch of demonic animatronics, and it plays it pretty straight, and it's all the better for it. That's why it's number nine on my top ten. Number eight, 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 eight. I should have had a, I've had, I'm drinking my coffee this morning as I record this. So I'm a little bit hyper right now. Anyway, number eight slacks also a ludicrous premise. This plays it a little less straight, but it has something to say. Um, it's slacks. This is the killer jeans movie. This is, that's what it is. It's about a pair of killer jeans that go on a killing spree in a department store and it commits to the bit for all 77 minutes. That's right, folks. 77 minutes long. This is my kind of movie. It might be a little bit one note premise, but it never wears out its welcome because it's 77 minutes long. It's also funny and bloody and filled with some commentary about the world of fashion and how it exploits people. It's all there. The jeans and slacks, they're possessed by a 13 year old child laborer who was killed in a thresher by an experimental Indian cotton field used to make the jeans. So if you want it, it's there. But what this movie delivers on mostly for me is its premise, which is a jeans bloodbath. The slacks, like the slacks in this movie, the jeans, they squeeze a victim in half at the waist. They rip a guy's arm off and then they slit his throat with their zipper. They strangle a woman. At one point, the slacks, they show the slacks on the ground and they're drinking the blood of one of their victims. These are pissed off jeans. They are the uh, Gabriel of jeans and I'll get to I'll get to Gabriel a little bit later. They're great. I had a ton of fun with the Canadian produced absurdity that is slacks. I've never had a pair of jeans kill me, obviously, but I do understand the importance of a pair of good jeans. So I guess I think I'm probably on more of the side of the victims than I care to admit here. I've had maybe like three or four good pairs of jeans in my life and I will wear them out. For example, I have one good pair of jeans right now and I just wash them after like two weeks straight of wearing them. This is a, this is something to admit here. So while I don't think my jeans were, will ever kill me, I could see them getting so dirty and like crusty that they, they constrict and they cut off my circulation and I could be like strangled to death by my jeans. But no jeans attempting to murder me yet. But I'm on the lookout now. So thank you, Slacks. All right, let's keep moving here. Number seven, Slumber Party Massacre, the remake, reboot, legacy pull. Once again, don't know what we're calling these things right now. This is the movie that uh, made me feel like Armand White. So a little background on Armand White for those that don't know. I think he writes for like the National Review now, but he's a film critic and he's known for being contrarian. So 
for example, when a superhero movie, let's say, was sitting at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes after the early reviews, Armand would swoop in and give it a negative review, review, and the superhero movie fans would lose their minds. It was really funny. The whole thing, both sides of it were very funny. I don't know. He might still do this. I don't really pay attention to him much anymore. I think he was like booing the director, Steve McQueen, and they kicked him out of the critics. And stuff. He's a... He's a He's very silly now, in my opinion. I used to like his writing, though, honestly. I rarely agreed with it, but I don't mind a little contrarianism. And I I thought his reviews were always pretty well written, if completely wrong. But he started to become a little bit too big of a troll. Like I said, he was booing directors or heckling them. I stopped paying attention to him a few years back. Anyway, he used to do this feature, Armand did, at the end of every year, where he would recommend movies that cover similar ground as movies of that year that were well regarded amongst critics. It was called the better than list and it rocked. It was my favorite thing he used to do. I think he still does it. Once again, I don't read him, Um, but it was really off the wall stuff. So like, for example, he, he wrote that ghost of writer, ghost, ghost of writer. (laughs) Sorry. I tickled me. Ghost writer, spirit of vengeance, the Nicholas cage, Idris Elba, Ghostwriter, the sequel, was better than Zero Dark Thirty. He said, Neville Dean and Taylor revealed the post-9-11 zeitgeist and genre tropes, while Bigelow reduced the zeitgeist to an enigmatic comic strip, a mission-accomplished delusion. (laughs) So he used to do this thing. He used to do this thing every year, and it rocked. It was so awesome. Uh, Anyway, I bring all of this up because I watched Slumber Party Massacre around the same time as I watched the new Candyman, And I thought they both did similar things in critiquing the original movies in their respective franchises. But the Slumber Party Massacre did so with a surprising amount of like cleverness and empathy. And the Candyman reimagining kind of felt didactic to me. So there you go. Slumber Party Massacre 2021. That is the movie that made me feel like Armand White. Slumber Party Massacre. Better than Candyman. Number six, Fear Street, 1978. I loved the Fear Street trilogy, and this one was my favorite of the three. I like the summer summer camp setting. I love the needle drops. I don't care if there's a billion needle drops as long as they're sweet. And I had a blast listening to Marco Beltrami's score as he kind of riffed on Harry Manfredini. I don't know what to think about the current streaming age we find ourselves in. It's a lot. It's a lot of content. In some ways, I think it's great because, I mean, if you would have told me when I was a kid that I would have a streaming service that was just cranking out like weekly Marvel comic series every couple of months, I would have flipped the hell out. And it's like lower level Marvel comic characters too, like Hawkeye, crazy stuff here. I actually think though that the Fear Street trilogy of movies that came out this past year was the most interesting experience so far in the streaming age. And it seemed to be pretty successful for Netflix, I think. I don't know. They don't release any numbers You can track the top 10. I know that this movie was in the top 10 on Netflix for the weeks that it was new. And I know a lot of people were talking about them while they were out. So I think that qualifies as a success. I don't know. I think they're making more of these. I don't know what the future holds for serialized horror films on streaming. I just know I like this and I thought the strategy worked out very well. It made it feel like an event. And as we get more and more in our own entertainment bubbles with streaming, you can just kind of watch what you want at this point, I find myself missing those events more and more. I'm not a binge watcher. I've grown to kind of hate the model. It's mostly due to me and how slow of a watcher I am because it's 
it's about it's a, how much content we're bombarded with. And that's when I when I usually finish these series, everybody has moved on to something else. I finished Mid- Midnight Mass and everybody was talking about Squid Game. So it sucks for me. Uh, weekly release crew mount up. But anyway, that's just me being old and complaining. I loved Fear Street in 1978. It made me feel young again. Number five. Here is a controversial one, I'm sure. But Halloween Kills. I know this movie is divisive as hell, I but we haven't had a good divisive horror sequel like this in a long time, and I loved that we got one this year. 2018 Halloween is a movie that I liked, but also one that I like less each time that I watch it. And I think it's the Laurie stuff in the movie that really irks me. I like the H2O version of Laurie a little bit better, actually. Anyway, Halloween Kills has been compared to Last Jedi a lot, the... Ryan Johnson, Last Jedi. I think it's called Last Jedi. And I think it's because of the way the movie deconstructs like the Skywalker myth. And this movie does something similar with Laurie Strode as the final girl who Michael does not give a shit about. But I don't think it's fair to compare Halloween Kills to The Last Jedi because this movie is way better than The Last Jedi. First of all, any Halloween movie is better than any Star Wars movie. That's a fact. No, actually, like... I can't, I was going to talk myself out of it, but no, 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 no. I'm not apologizing for this either. You shouldn't apologize for factual statements. As the Facebook group's names say, facts don't care about your feelings. So there you go. Halloween movie, any Halloween movie, better than any Star Wars movie. Second, the middle portion of The Last Jedi is boring as hell. There's all that stuff on the casino planet, I think, and it takes up like an hour of the movie. Absolutely not. The second act of Halloween Kills is far superior because it introduces a bunch of cool as hell characters like Big John and Little John and like those psychotic little trick-or-treating kids, those nasty little tricksters, and Michael kills them all. If Michael was on that casino planet in the Star Wars, then we could talk about The Last Jedi being a good movie. But as it is, it's probably like the third or fourth best Star Wars movie. Halloween Kills, amazing movie. Plenty of great kills. Lives up to its title. Looking forward to seeing how they end it. And it is my number five. All right, let's rock through these last four on my list. Jacob's Wife, number four. I really dig director Travis Stevens. Girl on the Third Floor was a very heady haunted house movie about like repression and all of those themes are here as well. Travis Stevens should make a Hellraiser movie, actually. Jacob's Wife is a little bit lighter than Girl on the Third Floor. In fact, at times it plays more like a marriage comedy than it does a horror movie, and that's kind of what I dug about it. I'm not a big stickler for tone, and this movie has tone all over the place. It's smart, it's sexy, it's funny, it's bloody. It is a sexy movie, I said that. Let's talk about this for a second, because there is one performance that really conveys that sexiness throughout, and it does so in a way that doesn't shy away from the performer's age, and in fact, it uses that age to its advantage in many ways. The sexiness of this movie very much rests on the performance of one person, a genre legend, if you will. And that actor, of course, is Larry Fessenden. What a smoke show. My goodness. No, no. Jacob's wife is the Barbara Crampton show. She's phenomenal. And Travis Stevens is two for two for me with this and girl on the third floor as far as being a director. So Jacob's wife is my number four movie of the year. Number three, 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 Psycho Goreman. Not everything. Everything tries to be about something these days. Listen, I know. I know it's good. I know the human condition and all that. And movies and works of art should be about the human condition. But sometimes irreverence is important as well. Sometimes it's important to just sit back and laugh at everything and how silly it all is. 
Psycho Goreman is silly as hell. It's about nothing. I don't think. It isn't about making some grand statement on life or the world around us. There's no deeper political meaning here. Maybe there is. I don't know. All I know is there's a rap song that sung, sums up the movie and it's sung by the movie's main character who calls himself the Archduke of Nightmares. He's a deadly alien warrior who's been imprisoned on the earth after attempting to destroy the galaxy in a rampage. Psycho Gorman is the best. And honestly, sometimes... All of, all of what I said just there, that's good enough for me. I don't think you need to ignore the world around you, but sometimes you need a break. And listen, I know it's bad out there a lot, but sometimes it's okay to just sit and enjoy something with absolutely nothing to say. And maybe that's the point of Psycho Gorman and why sh- we should celebrate it so much. So that is my number three movie on my list. The final two here. Number two, Last Night in Soho. Edgar Wright, directed by Edgar Wright. He seems to be in a bit of a career transition. I like Baby Driver well enough, but I thought this one was phenomenal and a bit more confrontational than I expected from him in some ways, but maybe I guess I should have seen it coming looking back on it. Baby Driver is a movie with some dark edges around it. The World's End is a movie about alcoholism. So maybe I should have seen Last Night in Soho's attack on hero worship and nostalgia coming. I love Mad Men. Mad Men was one of my favorite shows of all time. Nothing happens in it, really. But one of my favorite things about Mad Men is just how shitty and broken everyone is It is in it. We think back a lot of times in the 50s and 60s as, as this great time period in American life. Nothing was wrong. And then you watch, you watch the characters in Mad Men and you realize, oh, no. Oh, no. Things aren't so good. But those characters are also incredibly fun to watch. And I think this is something that people struggle with. I struggle, struggle with, and I think it's something that last night in Soho wrestles with as well. Sometimes people we admire or find entertaining or fascinating or create our favorite works of art are not good people. They're not role models. And this movie is an attack on nostalgia as well. And early on it's overflowing with reverence for its setting. And as that movie, as this movie goes along, it, it gets a little bit darker and as we get it deeper into it, it starts to show you the rotten core inside. This movie takes place in the 1960s, which is 60 years from now. If I live another 60 years, I will probably die when some kid starts rambling about how cool things were from the 2020s, the 2020s. Like this kid's going to start rambling about how, how awesome like Logan Paul is or something. I don't know. See, this is how old I am or like, I don't know how great the Transformers movies were or something like that. I guess that's a couple decades ago. Now I've lost track of time last night in Zoho understands the horror that I will be dealing with in the future. And that's why it's my number two movie on this list. Oh my gosh. I am coming in at, under 30 minutes easily. So my number one movie of the year, drum roll, please do it at home. My number one movie, the best movie of, I'm not even going to say my favorite because it is the best. That is James Wan's malignant. Please. This is the most obvious number one movie ever. It's the best. It's 2021 by the way. So genres mean absolutely nothing anymore. I know this sounds weird coming from someone who hosts a horror movie podcast, but nobody cares about defining what genre something belongs to. That is for olds, not the youths like me. Malignant is horror. It's comedy. It's action. It's all in a blender. But more importantly, it's James Wan in a blender. James Wan in a blender, along with all of his influences. So I'm talking about all of the trademarks of a James Wan films that I mentioned just a second ago, the horror, the action. Um, Cause I also think this is sprinkled with a little bit of Wes Craven shocker on top. It's all here. And he's on top of his game. 
I mentioned when I talked about the Wrong Turn remake that I love being surprised by a movie, and the second half of this movie also took me by complete surprise. It's it's absolutely in batshit in the best way possible. I look forward to watching Malignant again and again. I will be happy to see Gabriel Gabriel whoop ass in a sequel, which we already should have had announced. Tenet, well, this is the streaming area. Streaming era. We should have ten Malignant sequels by now. I'm saddened that we don't. I listen to a lot of sports talk radio, and they always talk about who the GOAT is, the greatest of all time. And I'm here to tell you that Gabriel from Malignant is, in fact, the correct answer to this question. He is the GOAT. I'm going to lay it out for you like this. Tom Brady has 618 career touchdowns. How many arms has he busted so bad that there's there's bones sticking out? Zero, as far as I know. Wayne Gretzky is the leading scorer in the history of the NHL, mentioned as the GOAT. Has he ever stomped so hard on someone's head that their brains do's out onto the floor? I can confidently say that Wayne Gretzky has not done that. He seems very nice. Michael Jordan, six NBA titles, six of them, zero punches through the stomach so hard that his hand comes out on the other side of the person that he has punched. I'm actually less confident in this statement. To be honest, there is there's a non-zero percent chance that this has actually happened. That Michael Jordan has done this. Anyway, that's it. Malignant, my favorite movie of 2021. A great year, a weird year because yeah, it was it was kind of a combination of 2020 movies that were delayed and 2021 movies. But it means we got a ton of pretty good movies, and I I thought this was a very very good year for horror. Uh, compared to other years. I don't know. I don't have the time right now. I'm going to get out of here. That's it. I'm going to let everybody enjoy their 20, the last moments of their 2021 and into 2022. Thank you for being with us this year. It means a lot. So I just wanted to take the time out to say thank you. We've got some fun stuff coming down the pike. Check out the Midwest Game Nerds. They're always up to cool stuff, but that's it. No more. No more. Happy New Year, everybody.